Ephesus. What would you say to someone if they said to you, or you knew that they prayed, and they prayed, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation. And then they immediately go out and put themselves in a position of temptation. What would you say? Or what would you say to someone who you know? They ardently pray for the gospel to advance in our community, across our nation, to the ends of the earth. And they pray for that. And then some of the very things that they're doing is one of the major contributors as to why the gospel is not advancing to the ends of the earth. What would you say? These inconsistencies and many others, Scripture tells us, all flow from and spring forth from our view of and our relation to Money, this is what Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many pangs. Skipping down to verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray for God's blessing on His Word. Heavenly Father, we are about to examine some things today that, quite frankly, many of us have ignored, and most of us want to ignore. There are things and warnings that are given in this passage and Scripture as a whole that we don't think apply to us. We're really glad that they're there for other people. But Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, open our hearts, open our minds, open our souls, open our beings to you, to hear your word, and Holy Spirit, working by and with your word, would you change our hearts this day. Amen. So what would you say to your friend who said, praise, lead us not into temptation, and then goes out and throws themselves into the very position of temptation that they prayed that God wouldn't do? It's this and many other warnings Scripture scripture gives about our relationship with money. Many problems that we don't realize, many problems that we, about money that we don't want to acknowledge. But here are several things that Paul instructs us in this passage, that there is an inherent problem with money. One of those problems is that money itself is deceptive. There's this inherent lure to money. I think we feel it in our own experiences. When I look at my life, When I look at what's going on in my life, there is no problem in my life. There is no problem in my life that someone is not selling a partial solution for. There is no problem in my life 
that more money does not at least give the illusion or give the promise that your problem will be a little bit less if you just had more money to spend on whatever it is or spend on whatever issue or to save for the time when that issue arises. What Scripture says is that money itself is inherently deceptive. For by it, Paul writes, those who desire to be rich, that is those who want more, those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare. That would be a trap, something that they step in. They don't mean to step in it, but they get snagged by it. They fall into temptation. They fall into a snare. And through people's relationship with the money, people wanting more money, the desire to be rich, people, we, do to ourselves the very thing that we pray that God would never do to us is to lead us into temptation. And we step into temptation even though we're praying that God wouldn't, that God wouldn't do so. And so the, what happens is money itself is deceptive. It gives this illusion that money will give us greater security, but as soon as you get greater security through money, you then find out that you have got greater things that now need to be secured. That the more things that you have to possess, the more that you need to guard and protect. And it always happens that the more that you have, it results that it turns into the more that you want. It is never enough. There's something more. Money promises freedom. It promises opportunity. But there's one thing that money can never do is it can never liberate the human soul. It can never set the human soul free. In fact, the main thing that it can do is quite the opposite. Paul tells us in verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. This is where the popular phrase comes from, money is the root of all evil. Lots of books talked about in the news. It's a proverb that is oftentimes said. But to be clear, that's not what Paul says. Paul does not say that money is the root of all evil. Paul says something else. What he says is the love of money, not money itself. Money itself is rather neutral. But it's what you do with money and how you relate to money and how you view your money. And how you love it or don't love it. And what is your ultimate love? Is it a personal and self-gain or is it God himself? The love of money, not money itself. Second thing that's different is that it's not money is the root, it's not the root, money is a root. For the love, love of money is a root. Meaning there's lots of evil and there's lots of different reasons for evil. And the cause of every type of evil is not itself money. At the same time though, Money is a root of all kinds of evil, not all, not all evil. It is the root of all kinds of evil. Meaning there's lots and lots of different evil things that money is the root of. Selfishness, stinginess, greed, covetousness, cheating, fraud, perjury, robbery, envy, quarreling, hatred, jealousy, violence, murder, It's love of money, greed that lies behind marriages of convenience, lies behind perversions of justice, drug pushing, sale of pornography, blackmail, exploitation of the weak. It's love of money that has resulted in the abandonment by the church of God's mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's love of money that has resulted in the neglect of supporting good causes. It's love of money that turns into the betrayal of friends, betrayal of family members, immorality, and injustice. And when you think about this, and that's just a few of the ways that money is a root of all kinds of evil, we need to ask ourselves, given how stark 
Scripture's warnings are about this. We need to ask ourselves, am I, are you, are you Christian, am I, are you foolish enough to think that you are immune to these things? Foolish enough to think that you are immune to all of these challenges, to all of these temptations when Scripture speaks to this issue more than any other issue. I'm so glad it does because lots of other people need to hear about it. Do you really think that you're immune to this? I think Scripture would warn us otherwise. In the midst of all these different evils, Paul focuses on two in this passage. He says, from the love of money, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. What Paul's identifying is that you cannot pursue truth and wealth. You cannot pursue living for God and living for self-advancement. They are incompatible. They do not go together. They, don't, they cannot fit. You cannot do both simultaneously. And through their love of money and their relationship to money, there are some who are professing Christians who have wandered away from the truth for one reason and one reason alone. It's their relationship to money. And he says... It pierces many people, pierce themselves with many pangs. What are they not quite sure? Worry, remorse, a seared conscience, anxiety, broken relationships, despair, take your pick. I think one example of this was the 19th century financier, the railroader by a man by the name of Jay Gould, sprawled in the railroad industry. When he died, he was not mourned. He died unlamented. Nobody was sad to see him go. In the 1800s, he died with a net worth of over about $100 million. And it's reported that his dying breath was, I am the most miserable devil in the world. And he died. It's deceptive. He lived his life in pursuit of money, thinking that it would give him freedom and opportunity, and it's deceptive and plunges him into destruction. That leads to the next point. Money is not only deceptive, it is itself dangerous. It says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. Senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The word there for plunge is like sinking, drowning, uncontrollably being pulled down. If you want to separate the two phrases there that plunge people into ruin, that would be ruin in this life, and destruction, that would be destruction of hell in the next life. And the irony here is that people who live for a love of money set themselves, they set out for gain, and they end in total loss. Not only do they lose everything financially, because you can't take that with you, but they also lose their integrity, their family, their self, and most of their relationships. It is dangerous. Paul gives a couple other reasons why it's dangerous. It's dangerous because it generates within us a false pride. For the rich in this present age charge them not to be haughty. Not to be arrogant. Charge them. Command them. Obligate them. Obligate them to not be arrogant. How does that happen? Because when you start to get more stuff, when you start to acquire, when your bank account accrues, when your 401k accrues, what happens is you start to generate your self-worth from your accomplishment. I worked hard. I've been diligent. Look at the positions that I came to. All of this is stuff that I've earned. Look how far I've come. And what Scripture says is, do not be deceived. That kind of thinking is going to imperil your soul if that's how you think about it. Don't be haughty. All of that's a gift from God, not from yourself. There's also a danger of a false security, of being secure in yourself, of being impressed by what you have done, 
and relying upon yourself. He says, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Wealth is inherently uncertain. There are many people who have gone to bed rich and have woken literally the next day poor. Now, we hear of passages like this, and we, we like to think, I like to think, my security is not based on my stuff. My security is not based upon my finances. But as soon as we begin to think about giving our stuff away or substantially being generous, all of a sudden these insecurities start to, start to surface. Well, what about this? And how is this going to get paid for? And what are we going to do about this? And what about the future? All of these securities start to surface, even to a greater degree than what we currently have. And Paul's exhortation is, do not set your hope on riches, which are inherently uncertain. You take these admonitions together, and there's this weird thing. I mean, it's, it's funny, kind of weird. I mean, we are, we are programmed to think that money is always a blessing, right? It is always a blessing. There is a whole lot more money. Great, what a blessing. You got a whole lot more stuff. Great, what a blessing. Maybe. But maybe it's just broadened your, your highway to destruction. Maybe it's not a blessing. Maybe it's actually the worst possible thing for your soul. And yet we don't view it that way. The Word of God says that money is often the principal, a principal barrier to God and to eternal life and to an abundant life in Him. And you see this throughout the pages of Scripture. Consider Cain and Abel. What happened to Cain? Cain did not want to offer his best to God. His brother did, so he became jealous of his brother and killed him. You consider Achan and the destruction that came upon him and his family. Why? Because they wanted to keep a few forbidden treasures inside their tent. You go to Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, which Scripture tells us that despite his wisdom, loved his money and loved his possessions, and it led him astray. You look at the book of Proverbs. speaks to that more than any other issue, the relationship of people to their money and to their wealth. You come to Jesus, he talks about it more than any other subject. Luke chapter 6, he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. You hear that and say, yeah, yeah, they need to watch out. Because who is rich? Whoever makes more money than I do. That's who's rich. Let's just take a step back. Globally, I know you don't want me to do this, globally... The number here is 36,000, at least by one estimate. 36, if you make $36,000, globally you are in the top 1% of the global population income-wise. Okay, you, two of you. That's per person. $70,000, $65,000 for a household. Top 1%, you are the 1%. That's what Scripture's saying. Realizing that, let's look at this verse again. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. James is much more stark. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. At the least, given that Scripture gives so many, many warnings about our relationship to money, at the very least, we should say, whoa, I'm playing with dynamite. This is something that I really need to pay attention to. This is something that God takes really seriously. 
And I need to bring my heart in line with what God's word says. Because money is dangerous. And we need to appreciate that and understand that and regard it as such. It's deceptive. It's dangerous. It's also damning. So the verse tells us. Those who desire to be rich fall, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and into destruction. We've already talked about the self-destruction, how our view of our money can imperil us, that literally heaven and hell are at stake, and how we relate to our possessions. But it can also imperil other people. It does imperil other people. There's an urgent need in our world for the gospel to advance. There are 7 billion people in the world. One-third of them claim to be Christian, whether they are or they aren't or not. We don't know. Only the Lord does. Now, these 4.7 billion people who are on the road to eternal hell, and 2 billion of those have no access to the gospel, which means they will likely never meet a Christian in their lifetime, never come across a Christian in their entire life. All right, those are huge numbers. Let's boil it down a little bit. In one region in northern India, the death rate in northern India is 5,000 people per day. The percentage of Christians is 0.01% of the population. So every two days, 999,000 people plunge into hell every two days in one region in northern India. Why does that relate to our relationship to money? Because the, re- the resources to win the world for Christ, which I would, which can reasonably be said are present within the church in America, the resources to win the world for Christ are tied up in our stuff. They're tied up in our stuff, our cars, our houses, our more houses, and other things. And Ralph Winter, who has done more for the advancement of missions in the 20th century, probably than any other person, he might not be a name that you know, but he has, more than any other person, he's the driver of missions in the 20th century. He said, obedience to the Great Commission has more consistently been poisoned by affluence than by anything else. Why do people stop being obedient to the Great Commission? Because they don't want to lose their stuff. And those who love their money don't give it away. Those who love their money don't give to the cause and the advancement of the gospel. It is dangerous, it is deceptive, and it is damning. But there is an antidote. There is an antidote. In fact, there's kind of really only one antidote. And the antidote to the corruption of money, the antidote to the love of money, is radical generosity. It's the antidote to the infection. This is what Paul says in verse 18. He says, command the rich. As for the rich in this present age, charge them, command them, obligate them. Charge the rich. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Generous and ready to share. What do you do? You should be generous. I think when we look at our lives, you can recognize all that I have is given, that all that I possess is not mine. It is the Lord's. All that I have is given to me by God for God. I own nothing. I am simply a steward of the resources that the Lord entrusts to me. And he commands me and commands Christians, commands all of us to be generous and ready to share. And in my observation, I think Bible-believing Christians who wanted to follow Scripture, I think they kind of err on one of these or other. You have a lot of people who are generous but who are not ready to share and people who are ready to share but actually really aren't being very generous. For example, those who are generous, 
saying, I want to be generous with my finances. I'm going to budget. I'm going to budget to tithe. I'm going to budget some money to, to give above and beyond that and you know, do that. And then all of a sudden, there's another need that pops up. I'm like, wait a second. I'm not ready to share. I already gave my allotment away. I've already been generous. I'm done. I've been generous. I don't need to be ready to share. Generous and ready to share. And the, the, the encouragement there is for those of you that are generous, and many of you are and, and strive to be, those of you who are generous say, Lord, would you give me a heart that's ready to share when you move me to do so? Generous and ready to share. At the same time, there are other people who are ready to share. And what that means, and whenever a need in particular comes along, they're more than happy to drop some money in the plate or give to a particular need or, or something that comes along. And they're ready to share. But honestly, I mean, you know, commend people for doing so. But they're not very generous. Meaning is that you, it is very easy to assuage our conscience by putting, you know, giving $20 for this or I'm going to give $34 to support a compassion child when really the overall percentage of my money, like, I'd spend that extra money on, on a dinner without thinking about it. And so ready to share, but when you look at how much money people are giving or percentage of their income, not being very generous. And the command that Scripture gives is charge them to be generous and ready to share. And the generosity in being ready to share is the expression of what he means by doing good. What are the rich to do? They are to do good, to be rich in good works, that is, to be generous and ready to share. But that also extends into how you live your life and to what you do with your life. That if you are a person that is known because of your position that you've achieved in your workplace, if you're a person that's known because you've got a nice house and you've got a nice car or nice resources, nice assets, if that's what you're known for, what Scripture is encouraging you is charge them, that's not what you should be known for. You're being known for the wrong thing. You should be known, your reputation should be known that that is a person who is rich in good works. That is a person that lives to bless and to benefit other people. And that's what he calls us to. But how do you do this? I believe it can only happen, you can only live generously if you are committed to living for great gain. You can only live generously if you are personally, deeply devoted, and deeply committed to living for great gain. This is what it says. As for the rich in this, or here we go. But godliness and contentment, verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Live for great gain. Live for godliness with contentment. Godliness with contentment that spurs into generosity. Live for great gain. And he gives the simple reason. For we brought nothing into the world, and we take nothing out of the world. But Paul's reminding us, he says, when you are born, you are born naked and penniless, and when you die, you die naked and penniless. Your earthly possessions on your entry and on your exit from this world are completely identical. Your life is a, is a pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness and pennilessness. Live in that perspective. Live for great gain. Live with the internal perspective. And what we need most in our life, Paul goes on to remind us, is we need more of the gift giver and not more of his gifts. He says, command, charge them, command the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. What are we supposed to set our hopes on? But set their hopes on God. 
You are to live with your security founded in the Lord. And he reminds you, God is not stingy. Live with your hopes set on God who richly provides, who generously provides. And he reminds us, Paul does elsewhere in many passages, but one of those is Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you hear the logic that Paul is identifying here? He says, look at yourself. You are in a position of total despair, a position of total misery. You made no claims on, you, you can make no claim on God. The only thing that you, that you deserve was his judgment and displeasure against you. You had an enormous debt that you could not pay. And God, who is rich in mercy, became flesh, sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that you, you should have lived but did not live. To die the death that you should die, but through faith in him you don't die. So that you could have life abundant now and life eternal, which you don't deserve. And Paul's logic is this, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not graciously give us all things? If if God has been that lavish and gone to that extreme to provide for your needs, is he suddenly going to be, is he suddenly going to say, you know what? No soup for you. Too much. Not today. He's saying, are you crazy? Look at this. God did not spare his own son, but gave us for his all, up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And he doesn't just simply provide things for us, but he provides them to us to enjoy. Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, to be enjoyed as good gifts. You see, the difference here is that the, you know, the, the opposite can, of consumption may by definition be austerity. But that's not what Paul is instructing here. His orientation in his relationship is not extravagance or sparseness. He has a completely different framework. Paul's framework is thankful enjoyment. And in turn, to give good things... For others' enjoyment. That God would use you to bring about the eternal benefit of other people. And that you would be blessed and see what you have as, an enjoy, as, as a blessing from God. The typical way that we enjoy things, that we justify expenditures and indulgences, is we say, well, they've worked really hard. I really, I really deserve this. If someone says, you've gone through a lot. You really, you really deserve this. Therefore, indulge yourself. Therefore, be extravagant because you really deserve this. And that, that type of logic is never found in Scripture. But rather what Scripture says is God has blessed you. Receive it with thanksgiving. Enjoy it, not as this is what I really deserve, but enjoy it as, wow, I have a heavenly Father who loves me. I have a heavenly Father who provides for me. I have a heavenly Father who is not stingy, who is lavish, I have a heavenly father that, that's given me taste buds to enjoy Briar's mint chocolate chip ice cream. I have a heavenly father that has blessed me in so many ways is to enjoy with thankfulness and to share the blessings which you are a steward of with other people. And then he even goes a step further. Some of you 
maybe tend to think in terms of return on investment. Well, if I give my money away to the Lord, what, turn of, what sort of return on investment am I going to get on that? Personally, I'm uncomfortable with the question. But the Bible's not. And in fact, the Bible even directly appeals to that. It says, be rich in good works and be generous and ready to share, thus... Be generous, storing up for themselves, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. There is a guaranteed return on your investment. Are you investing? There is a guaranteed return. And so it follows if you're into rate of return on your investment, doesn't make more sense to invest today to get a return that will have to be consumed tomorrow, or does it make more sense to invest today when you will get a much greater return in the future? Paul's argument is life is short, it is temporal, invest in eternity where you will have a guaranteed return. How is your, how is your eternal investment portfolio? How is your eternal investment the antidote to the love of money and to its many problems is radical generosity. It is what puts us in a right relationship with our money and a right relationship to God as we do so in response to His grace. But if you've never done that, it can be rather shocking. When I was a teenager and into college and into my 20s, I consumed an enormous amount of food. And you say, yeah, I know, every, every teenage boy consumes an enormous amount of food. I had a health problem and I couldn't gain weight, and so my daily consumption was for breakfast, I would usually have two to three bagels with cream cheese and a quart of milk. Mid-morning, I would eat a six-inch sub with some sort of beverage. At lunchtime, I would eat a foot-long sub, have two pieces of fruit, two containers of milk from the school lunch line, one little six-pack of powdered donuts. <laughs> On the way home from school, I'd stop by Wendy's and get two 99-cent double snack stacks as a snack before dinner. I'd go to dinner, and we would have usually some large piece of meat, some one or two, one or two potatoes, a substantial pile of vegetables, another quart of milk, and then before bedtime, I would eat a bowl of pasta and drink an 800-calorie shake. I consumed an enormous amount of food. When I went to college in the all-you-can-eat meal plan, it was awesome. <laughs> I would go through the line. I'd have two trays. I'd usually have five dinner plates of food. They would be lined up at my plate, and I would just chow down. <laughs> eat one next, eat one next. My wife, can, my wife can testify to that. I also was not the most coordinated, and I regularly dropped them in embarrassing ways. But that's for, an <laughs> that's, that's for another time. And, and I had a, a variety of stomach problems and health problems. I could not gain weight despite an inordinate calorie consumption that I was going through, that I was doing. And that went on for many years, probably close to a decade. And then the Lord healed my body. Um, and he healed my body. And, you know, even during that time when I was consuming so much food, like, I still couldn't gain weight. I, I looked like a praying mantis. I could still clap my elbows together. Um, and later on, the Lord brought healing for me and um, uh, healed my physical problems, um, and I got a desk job, and my appetite didn't change. And so in very short order, I quickly gained 40 pounds, 
and my blood chemistry was all off, my cholesterol was high, my triglycerides were high, my blood sugar was high. And so I went on an um, eating plan um, from the American Heart Association. I went on a low-carb, right-carb eating plan that within the first two weeks of it, you substantially, I substantially cut out every carbohydrate from my life um, to get adjusted. Now, mind you, I was consuming loaves of bread on a daily basis and bowls of pasta. And so the idea from going to that and going to uh, a low-carb diet was excruciating. It was rather miserable. I was not a very nice person. I freely confess that. But during that time frame, what also happened is that I was having these cravings that I had never experienced before to this degree, these uncontrollable cravings and urgings for sugar and to consume sugar. And in fact, I had cleaned out everything out of our house that, you know, might be tempting. And one day I was like, I just got to, I just got, I was still having huge calories, but just, it was shifting what it was. I was like, I have just got to find something that I can eat. So I'm going through our cabinets and I'm like, okay, canned asparagus, canned this, canned that, canned spinach, like canned beets. Yes, I love canned beets. I love canned beets. And I'm like, I don't love canned beets. And then I'm like, canned beets. And so I open up this can of beets and I just devour this whole can of beets. I'm like, Why? I don't like beets. Why, why did I do this? And I'm like, right, that's why they call them sugar beets. Okay, this is kind of embarrassing. And then the next day I was craving some other sugar. And so I, I took a bar of unsweetened baker's chocolate and I was licking it and, dip, and dipping it in Splenda and then, and then munching on it and had little like Splenda bits all over my chin, you know, as I'm, as, 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 as I'm munching on, on this thing here. And, and it was crazy, right? And it was crazy. And, and I was like, All right, how much more? When do I have to get over this? I don't know if I'm going to be able to continue doing this. And it was miserable. And then, without really knowing it, I started becoming a whole lot less hungry. And I started consuming a whole lot less food without noticing it. And I suddenly had a whole lot more energy. And over the weeks and months in the going into the future, I, I lost 25 pounds. My cholesterol dropped by 50 points. My triglycerides dropped. My, my sugar dropped. And suddenly, for the first time in my life, food was an enjoyment. And I was starting to genuinely enjoy food. And I would still have a dessert periodically. And when I would have a dessert or a bowl of ice cream, I would enjoy it. And I was like, wow, that was, that was good. But I could enjoy it without the craving of, that was good, but man, I really just wish I could eat the entire tub of ice cream right now, but I guess I won't. But to genuinely, to genuinely enjoy it, what had happened is that my desires had changed. And you look at that and say, okay, well, in this new pattern that I was in, this new way of living, was I missing anything? Was I missing not consuming everything on sight? Not at all. And in fact, I felt a whole lot better, and I was healthier, and my food was a whole lot more enjoyable, and there was great gain in the way that I was living now. And yet, periodically, cravings would return for something, and I'd have to, you know, say, okay, that, that's, that's just going to make me more frustrated. And there was this new way of living that was of huge benefit within my own life. The reason why I share that is that for some of you, the thought of moving towards radical generosity is like the thought of going on a low-carb diet. It is that you have been living in consumption mode and in high consumption mode. 
And the thought of doing so, the thought for me to go from bread and pasta to no carbs, was inconceivable. And for some of you, the thought of shifting to living, gen to living generously is really inconceivable. For some of you, that's because you have been living in consumption mode, and that literally means consuming stuff, more stuff, and it's reflected in your finances, and it's reflected in your credit card balances. For the others of you, it's not so much consumption of stuff, but it's hoarding your wealth. Your goal is to, how much can I accumulate? How much can I increase my investments? How much can I increase my account? And again, the challenge is, is that, and with that, with these desires, there is way more stuff, way more cars, way more house, more furniture, more presents, more vacations, more experiences, more opportunities for our children, more savings that we want to have for the future. There is way more stuff of that that will completely consume your thoughts as you begin to consider this. And... If you take steps to start moving in the direction of living generously and being ready to share, as Paul commands, parts of it will be painful. And you'll probably be really irritable for the first two weeks. <laughs> But there is something that happens when you start living generously. What happens is that you start wanting less. And you start consuming less. And the Lord changes your desires. And all of a sudden, the things that you used to want, that you feel that you had to have, the things that used to stress you out, don't do so anymore. And there is a peace and contentment that the Lord gives to you. And if someone were to ask you, hey, you're giving away a whole lot more money than you've ever given. I cannot imagine giving away that much money. Are you, am I missing anything? And you're like, no, no, not at all. In fact, I feel so much better. And actually, the stuff that I do have, it's so much more enjoyable. I'm so, and I'm so much more thankful for it. And I actually begin to wonder, how can I bless other people? And there's joy in blessing other people's, and it, and it, and it boggles. It'll, be, it'll begin to boggle your mind and you say, wow, I, I can't imagine that, that God would actually use me to save people from hell. God would actually use me. God is blessing me in such a way so that the gospel would advance to the, to the ends of the earth. And as you begin doing so, you find out that this isn't just a concept, but you start living for great gain. You start living for great gain that is abundant right now where you are enjoying the blessings that God has for you and you are laying a foundation for eternity. See what Scripture warns us? That the love of the money is the root of all kinds of evil. And yet it so quickly imperils your soul. And there is an antidote And it is radical generosity that flows from a person who is determined to live for great gain because they know Jesus Christ. And so may we, may we love Christ above all else, and may we live for great gain. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we've discussed some things today that are incomprehensible to many of us. And that's because living for ourselves and finding security in our wealth is all that we've ever known. But as Jonah prayed in the belly of the whale, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Father, there are some of us here today who are forfeiting the grace that you have for them. That they are clinging to uncertain things to give them a security that can only be found in you. 
Father, we confess that we view you wrongly. That for some reason we think that you're like the soup Nazi. That you're stingy. That you're a curmudgeon. And yet if I just take a half a step back and I look at my life, I'm so unbelievably blessed. And those blessings are not the result of my hand, but only because of yours, the gift giver who gives so generously because you have made me your child through Jesus Christ. So Father, may we rejoice that you, we have a loving Heavenly Father who will never leave us, you will never abandon us, and you will never forsake us. And so Lord, may we reflect it in the way that we live and live generously that the gospel may advance to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God for the preached word. Um, And let's uh, respond to that by singing praises to him. Please stand with us.